Amen, amen. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Some of y'all are unsure if it's a good morning, but but we'll take it. Uh, so hey, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. That's where we'll be. We're in week two of this last section of Mark, working from chapter 11 all the way through chapter 16. And uh, today we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to look at a series of questions, about three questions that Jesus gets asked that are uh, questionable. Questionable questions? Uh, maybe that's a good way to put it. But uh, I think there's some things we can learn from these questions about Jesus and about humanity. And so I'm going to read beginning of verse 27 through verse 33 to kind of get the first question. Um, and then I'm going to pray. And then uh, and just ask God's blessing over our time together, okay? And then I'll come back and we'll talk about it. Beginning in verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem. This is talking about the disciples. The disciples and Jesus came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you a question. Then you can answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I do the, these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? You answer. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe uh, him? But if we say human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, um, we don't know. And Jesus answered them, okay, then I don't have to answer you either. All right? <laughs> Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Um, let me voice a prayer. Uh, Father God, I thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would uh, illumine our hearts and minds to the truths of your gospel. And God, may we, may we see, hear, and taste your word in ways, God, that maybe we haven't before. Uh, God, help us to understand your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, there's nothing worse than the first six months after your child learning the word why. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I can remember for, for my kids when that was. My kids, that wasn't a big thing for them. I've got cousins, on the other hand, that it was a huge thing there. Some of them are still recovering uh, from the word why, right? And so what I know about the word why is it's actually one of the healthiest things that our children can do. They, it's great for them to discover and ask questions, to be generally inquisitive, but boy, is it annoying, <laughs> It's hard to get asked why over and over and over by a child who doesn't even understand the answer when you give it to them. And after about three or four levels, I get to that famous parent statement. There it is, and you walk away, which is terrible parenting. You should try to help them discover, help them find the answers, but sometimes enough is enough. To be questioned about every single thing you do and say can be super difficult to go through. The saving grace here is that most kids don't have a, uh, a, a, a like a negative ul ulterior motive, right? Like they're just generally inquisitive. Now, if an adult asks, comes to me and asks me those same questions and keeps continuing to ask me questions and questions and questions and questions and questions, I eventually am going to question their heart, right? That's what we do. Because adults can sometimes, in their questions, have more sinister purposes. In Mark, what we're seeing, these verses I just read and the ones that are to, are to come, sometimes Jesus was asked questions, not because people wanted to learn and grow and, and, become, and learn more about who he was. They wanted, to, they wanted to question his authority. They wanted to, uh, to, uh, uh, to paint him into a corner sometimes. And so 
Um, this is what's going on in Jesus's ministry. And so I want to talk about this first one. Uh, there are three questions we're going to look at that go all the way through chapter 12, verse 27, um, that are asked to put Jesus in a tough spot. And each one of them shows us like this deep-rooted issue with Jesus's authority. And uh, so here's, que- we've already looked at question number one, but here's the, the truth that we're going to, or the, the or just, anyway, here it is. Point number one uh, is this. The, we're seeing a question about truth, question of truth. Okay, so Jesus is asked, who gave you this authority to do these things? We don't know exactly what these religious leaders were hinting at here. What do they mean by these things? They say it twice in the text. Do they mean his general teaching? Do they mean his miracles? Um, It does seem relevant that Jesus is back in the temple. What did we talk about last week? What did Jesus just do in the temple? I'm talking about kick tables over like taught with exclamation points like there was a lot going on last week if you missed that you can look back in the text and see jesus cleansed the temple and there's a lot going on there super cool but that's what's this jesus we don't know exactly what they mean by these things but what we do know is that at least in part this idea of jesus cleansing the temple him overstepping uh, what they believed to be his authority. He was not a priest, yet he began to cleanse the temple as if he was. And so that's at least part of what's in their mind. But whatever they meant, it's obvious that they were not asking a question to understand Jesus better here. This has very much that little kid. We, y'all, we all went to school with that kid. Some of you were that kid who was real quick to say, you're not the boss of me, right? Or this one, who died and made you boss? Remember that one on the playground? Uh, you know, Kelly and I joke, uh, or something we would do with kids, like when, when a young, when a young boy oftentimes, uh, is like commanding a room and, and getting kids to do stuff, we we say, man, he's going to be a good leader. But what do we say about girls that do that? They're bossy, right? And so, uh, we I realize like what a terrible, like sexist thing that we do in our culture. And so Kelly and I now talk when we see Elsie Jo show, we, we say her leadership is showing. You see what I'm saying? So it's just a healthy thing for you. We say that with Daniel and and, uh, Elsie Joe both. Their leadership's showing a little bit. Um, But that's the vibe that's going on here. This is a push back against Jesus more than it is a legitimate question seeking an answer. They're questioning Jesus' authority. But to, to really see the bite of this question, you've got to see the bigger picture. You've got to see what's going on. You see, these, these religious leaders that are approaching Jesus, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, that's, the, that's the, the governing body, essentially, of the people. And they were supposed to be leading God's people to love him more and respect his word, but they had gotten off base. Through selfishness and greed, they were no longer leading God's people in a healthy direction. And that's why Jesus, all through his ministry, calls out their hypocrisy time and time again. And then flip that, it's why they hated Jesus. It's why, do you remember this nugget last week? The chief priests and the scribes, two of the three groups that are approaching him now, verse 18. When they heard Jesus' teaching in the temple after he cleaned house, They started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. These are religious leaders acting like mob bosses. Now, Kenny and I have had a lot of conversations, just me and him during the week, um, and sometimes we're not in a good place. We're mad at something, right? But you know a conversation we've never had as your leaders here? (laughs) That if we could just kill... Terry Nichols, 
If we could just, if we could just rub him out, and man, it, our church could really flourish. Like if we could just, well, we've never had that conversation. Why? Because that's sinful. Like, I don't know if it can be super sinful, but it seems extra sinful. But here, these these are supposed religious leaders who are having a conversation about trying to put someone to death. Man, we are. God help them, they are so far from what their original intention is supposed to be. And if, if not kill him, they at least want to go after the root of his ministry, his authority. They want people to begin to question whether he's speaking on behalf of God or whether he's just speaking of his own wisdom. And if so, if they can get them to think that, then they can retain some of their own power for themselves. Now, what I found interesting is I was studying through this question of, you know, what authority do you speak with? Uh, this question's 2,000 years old now, and it's asked to Jesus himself. But what, what God just, as I began to interpret the scripture and begin to ask the question, what does this mean for us? What I began to think about and realize is that a form of this very same question has been asked to every generation of believers since. You see, the modern way that the question gets asked is in regards to truth. We don't talk about authority necessarily, we talk about truth. What gives your church the right to call that truth, to, to, to define truth? Who gets to define truth? Why do Christians claim that, that God is absolute truth? How can you as a church speak into this issue and say it's sin, right? The church gets asked a ton of questions in this vein today. The prevalent thought in our world is that each person gets to define for themselves what truth is. But this goes against what we see in the Word. And it's led to so many issues within our culture in regards to sexual orientation, gender identity, and a host of other things that all find their root in this one question, church. What is truth and who gets to define it? It's interesting that after Jesus gets this question, he tells a parable, which is my favorite. Like Jesus, he he, he kind of answers it, but then he goes, hey, let me tell you all a story. Everybody gathers around, you know. They think it's going to be just really encouraging or something or a funny story, but I believe this is a parable that's going to shed light on the heaviness of this question, and, and I think what we can expect going forward is the church. Uh, I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to kind of sum it up in my own words, and then we're going to look at the end of the story. So uh, it begins in chapter 12, verse 1, though. Jesus says that a man plants a vineyard, okay? And I found out in the first service that corn is, does not grow in a vineyard. I made a mistake, and I said they were growing corn, okay? I get it. It's not in the vineyard. It was probably grapes or something like that, all right? But he plants a vineyard, and, and, it, and it, he does it up really, really nice. And then he leases it to some farmers and asks them to run it, gives them the, the opportunity to run it, and he goes out of the area, whatever. And the deal apparently was, y'all run it, and when it comes time to harvest, just set some aside for me, and I'll come back and get it. That's the, that seems to be the deal. So when the time comes for harvest... The, the landowner sends a servant to collect from them. But we find out in the text that instead of giving them the produce, they beat the servant and send him back. I know, it's intense, right? Just share a little corn, right? Or grapes. All right, but they don't. So the landowner is left with a decision. What do I do now? So the, the Jesus, again, this is a story Jesus is probably is making it up. But he tells them that he tries again. He sends another servant to plead with them to stick to the deal. And guess what, guess what they do to him? They kill him. They kill him. That got out of hand, didn't it? They kill him. 
And the text says that the landowner keeps sending servant after servant after servant. Jesus tells us that every one of them is attacked. Some of them are killed, yet others are left lived, uh, to live and to bring the message back to the landowner. This is pretty intense. But what's going on is that these, these, these uh, tenant farmers who were asked to take care of it, they're wanting to keep the portion for themselves and not lose part. But what they're forgetting is that they had a deal, right? They're forgetting that there was an agreement on the front end of what their relationship was supposed to look like, and yet they're wanting to define the agreement for themselves. So the landowner has a decision to make here. They're killing my servants. I ain't got many left. So he decides to make this decision, verse 6, chapter 12, verse 6. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, Surely they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, Look, here's the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. You see what Jesus is trying to say through this parable? It's meant to parallel the people of God during this time. God is the landowner who has given humanity the opportunity to lease his creation. I know you've got a deed. And that means something to the government, but it don't mean anything to God. It's his land. This world, this creation is, is God's. God created all of this. And we, in Scripture, we find out in Genesis 1 and 2 that we are called to care for it and to bear the image of God in the world, living as if He is still the major authority figure. We are not in charge. He is. We are living that way. This is the agreement that humanity signed on to from the beginning. Whether you know that or not. You ever got into agreement? You didn't, you didn't, necessarily, you didn't read the fine print at the bottom? That's the text. That's what, Jesus, that's what God says in the very beginning. This is our agreement. But what did we do? There was this man and this woman named Adam and Eve, and they chose, instead of living out the agreement God that they had signed on for, they chose to define it for themselves. They take of a fruit from a tree that's literally called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why was that important? Because they chose in the moment. God's been telling us what good and bad is, but if we eat of this fruit, now we get to decide. We get to define the agreement for ourselves. And what have we seen over the last, how many ever years humanity's been here? What have we seen? Humanity continuing to choose to define the agreement our own way. But guess what happened? Eventually, God sends, God sends messengers, Right? This is probably a reference to prophets who came and, and were calling. They were trying to just remind the people of the earth, right? What were they trying to remind them of? The agreement. Hey, remember what God, remember what God said from the beginning? Remember what the agreement was? You're going to care for the land. You're going to bear his image in the world. Remember that? Remember, remember, remember. And what did they do? They beat him and they put him to death. Prophet after prophet that God sends calls the people to repent. No one listens. With each messenger, the people get hardened to the owner's authority. Just like the farmers, they forgot the deal they were invited into in the beginning. And eventually, God sends someone more important. God sends his own son to be a messenger. 
And what's so interesting is that Jesus is telling this story the week of what? His own crucifixion. And they don't know it yet. That's what I love. And then the landowner sends his son. And that doesn't, like we hear that and go, that's Jesus. They don't see it yet. Don't see it yet. And the people are going to put Jesus to death as the ultimate sign of their rebellion against God's authority. That's about to happen. So this was no doubt like a parable designed to bring conviction on those listening. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of Israel who were questioning Jesus' authority, they were, ignore, they were ignoring God's authority in their own lives and leading Israel to follow them in that rebellion. And Jesus is calling them out through this parable and helping them see that God was still pursuing the original deal of living in creation under God's authority. That's the call. Why did Jesus come to the earth? To help restore. He isn't creating something new. He's trying to restore the original deal that God had with humanity from the very beginning. But I think there's a message for those that are listening as well, who are hearing it as Jesus' followers. I think what Jesus is implying is that this is an age-old process that we can expect to continue. Humanity will continue to ignore the rule and reign of God and His Son, Jesus, trying to silence every messenger of His who comes on His own authority and standing for God's truth. It's going to continue to happen because people want to define the terms of our agreement for ourselves. We want to decide what our truth is. We want to decide who gets authority in our lives. So even before we get to point number two, there's a whole sermon in point number one. So I'm going to ask you some questions to start reflecting on. Who do you most resemble in this story? And I know that's a sorry question to ask because it's been wearing me out all week. Do you find yourself going, man, I'm one of the messengers. Man, I find myself like I'm living under God's reign, like I'm living for him and I'm pleading with others to be reconciled to God. That's awesome. I got a message for you here in a second. But Or are you one of the vineyard farmers? who desires to have all the joys and experience all the goodness of God's creation without having to submit to His authority. Defining the terms of your agreement with God. This is the heart of humanity from creation or from the fall of Adam and Eve all the way up through to today. And if you resonate with that, if you go, man, that's me, Heath. I'm, try- I, I wanna, I'm defining for myself what authority looks like, what truth looks like, and I'm not listening to God. There is a f- six-letter word for you today I'm going to teach you, and it's the word repent. Repent. St- to turn to God today and say, God, I am, I, I am living for myself. I am not living for you. Help me stop that through the power of the Holy Spirit and begin to live for you. However, if you resonate with the, the, uh, with the messengers, remember that none of these messengers show up with a bow and arrow and start fighting back. For whatever reason, that struck me. That the landowner never sends them back with a pitchfork and a flame. Because that's what I do. Oh, I'm going to get my corn. Grapes. I'm going to get it, right? That's, that's what we come to. That's, that's what we would do. But however, these messengers, they don't do that. They come. What are they doing? Pleading 
with them. Remember the deal. Remember the one who gave you the blessings that you're enjoying now and just give back to him. Just give him what he's due. And man, God just struck me with that this week. That we cannot fight fire with fire. I don't care what your political stance is. I don't care what's going on on social media. I don't care what awful things are said about God. The call on the Christian life is to humbly and lovingly plead with people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, restoring the original agreement that he had with them. There is no call that I can find. you got, you got to do some dancing to find approval from God to lash out at the very world that God is trying to redeem. It's tough. You can pay for my lunch and we can talk about it if you think you've got it, but I, I, it's going to be tough. I'll get a free lunch out of it. That'll be good. So that's this first group, and we're only one-third of the way through the sermon, so this will be fun. It's this question regarding truth. But the second group, another group, a totally separate group, two separate groups, come to Jesus with another question. This is a question of treasure. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. Then they, and this is like, you know, the, that, that they that we talk about, you know, <laughs> the people that are, that are working behind the scenes, the people that are trying to put Jesus to death, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. You know what sound you're supposed to make after that? Well, some suck-ups, right? Good night. They're, they're, anyway, then they asked the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Notice the hypocrisy. Jesus, we know you stand on truth. You're not afraid to teach God's truth clearly, no matter the circumstances. They're buttering him up. They're t- the, the cheese on the trap is this little, this little uh, flirtatious co- this compliment that they give to Jesus. And they put the cheese on the trap and they float it out in front of him. And then they ask him this question. Now, the reason why, you may not realize why this is a trap. It may sound like just a question to you, but there are two groups that are asking this question. the Pharisees and the Herodians. They've worked together to put to, put, to, put to this uh, this seemingly full truth trap. Golly. Let's try out. Let's start all over. They've worked together to put a seemingly foolproof trap together for Jesus. There it is. The Herodians are a group within the Jewish people who were supportive of the reign of Herod the Great. That's why they're called Herodians. And they no doubt, if Jesus said, no, 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 Jews, we serve God. We don't have to pay taxes. They're going to go immediately to Rome and go get him. And they're going to come arrest Jesus so fast, he ain't going to be able to get away. Well, Jesus could, but that's what they're going to do. The other group are the Pharisees, and these are the ones who, I mean, almost, this is, a, this is a caricature, but imagine them with the scrolls laid out in a magnifying glass, trying to find every single dot of the law, trying to find, what else can we put before the people that we're supposed to do? What, what more can we add to the law? What have we missed? And they're just constantly looking for every single thing, nook and cranny of the law. They would have probably, if Jesus would have said, that you did need to pay taxes, that yes, we, we, we owe this to Rome. We owe this to Caesar. We, sh- we should give 
our taxes. If, if, he, if he speaks too highly, then they're going to label him a traitor. And Jesus, they may rip him to pieces right there in the street. So, Jesus, in a real Jesus way, <laughs> speaks in a way that leaves both groups speechless. Verse 17, Jesus says, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Now, we often put all of our focus on the first part. What does Jesus mean by give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? Is Jesus saying, because Caesar represented the government for them, so is Jesus saying that we should just give the government whatever they ask for and never question them and never hold anything back? Does this apply to all aspects of government, like participation in voting and things like that? What exactly does Jesus mean here? Isn't that what you first thought? As soon as I read it, you were thinking, what does he mean by that? I hope Heath gets into it. And I was planning to, y'all. The first of the week, I was like, this is it. I'm going to lay out. Pastors have tried it, and they've all blown it. But Heath is going to lay out the, a biblical view of government, and it's going to be awesome. And I, I fully, like I thought, this is it. We're going to do this. And then, as I was studying this week, it's what I wanted to focus on. I wanted to have an answer for you guys, but then it hit me like a ton of bricks. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. That's not the point of the text. Jesus' emphasis doesn't seem to be on Caesar's image of the coin, but on God's image. Jesus is making a connection between an inscribed image on something and that person's authority over that thing. Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. His face is on the coin, whatever. And that's the part that we quote the most. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We forget that it's followed up with and give to God the things that are God's. Jesus is subtweeting the fire out of this. He's got a subtext here. He's saying, you're so concerned with what to give the culture. You're asking me the question of whether you should give what Caesar requires. Good not, you're not even giving God what he asks. That's the point. You're not at all concerned with what you were giving God. And man, as I read that and as I began to write it in my computer software, I just began to like almost weep and go, man, what an indictment against the Christian church. I know Christians who can tell a lost person more about a political stance than they can the Bible. God help us. Right? And so if the focus is not on the Caesar part, and I'll argue till I'm blue in the face that it's not. Then I know the next question is, okay, God, if there's something we're supposed to give you, what's the rate? Okay, I know about sales tax. I know about income tax. I know about property tax. I know, good night, I know. It goes on and on. <laughs> what's the God tax? What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you need from us, God. And if you're asking the question, you're not going to like the answer. <laughs> Jesus says that Caesar, in some way, has authority where his image is imprinted. Then to what does God have authority? He has authority where his image has been imprinted. You see my connection here. That's not a crazy thought that I just said. So the question then is, where has God's image 
been imprinted, the Bible clearly states from page one, in humanity. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In case you meant it, meant, meant, In case you missed it, he created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Do you see this? Jesus reminds his listeners that God created mankind in his own image. And I hope to be able to do a full biblical study of that term. What does it mean to be made in the image of God before the end of the year? I'm still working on my sermon calendar there, so please pray for me. But if the imprint of God has been stamped in us, then what does Jesus say is owed to? to God? Not a trick question. All of who you are. Give to God that which is God's. What is God's? You. This is the focus, church, not the Caesar part. This is what the religious leaders were concerned with, but Jesus in that Jesus way just flips the whole thing and gives them the answer they need, not the one they wanted. And he did the same thing with me this week. I wanted God, help me make sense of this Caesar thing. And God said, all right, here's the answer. Beep. And I went, oh, <laughs> I didn't want to hear that. But I, I, I struggle with this too. And so I know it's really tying heavy into our last point probably, but let me ask you even before we go to point number three, are you living your life for God? Are you giving him who you are? His image is in you and you owe him your life, whether you admit it or know it or not. So we see this question of truth. We see this question regarding treasure. And now... We see a question of theology. The third question Jesus asked is, a, uh, is asked is a, is a theological trap. And it's set out by yet another group within the Jewish community, uh, a group called the Sadducees. And let me read uh, verses 18 through 23. Uh, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher! Oh, boy. They called him teacher. Uh, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies... So when they say Moses wrote for us, they're, they're pointing back to the first five books of the Bible, uh, what they call the Torah. So Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies, leaving behind a wife, but no child, he's now left a widow who in this culture couldn't take care of herself. So that man, the brother, should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother so that the line can continue. And he says, so here's the situation. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman, then died. No kids. So then the second brother marries her, and then he dies. No kids. So then the third, and they don't go to it, but he said he, it's insinuated. We get all the way to the seventh one, and he marries her, and then he dies, and the wife dies. He says, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Because she's been with all seven. That's the, that's the text, right? All seven of them have married her. Who gets to be her her, her, her spouse in heaven. And we're such bad Bible readers sometimes because I can see it on y'all's faces, the same thing when I read it. That's a good question. <laughs> I kind of want to know too. Because we have questions. We got into a, not long ago, we talked about what happens when we die. We got into that whole thing. And we have questions that we want, like, will we recognize one another in heaven? Will I still be with my wife? Will we still enjoy one another's company as we do here on earth? Is that a heavenly thing? Is that a whatever? These are legitimate questions that we have. And when we read Jesus' answer, what initially happens, and this is why reading the Bible is so important to take our time, is that if you come with the context of wanting that answer, when you read Jesus' answer, you'll try to find it in there and it ain't there. 
Jesus' answer, again, he doesn't give them the answer they want. He gives them the answer they need. And here's what I mean by that. You need to know something about the Sadducees. Mark tells us at the very beginning, they had a particular belief that led to them asking this question. He, I, I tried to find this week uh, like a detailed explanation of what the Sadducees believed, but I found out that they didn't write anything down. The Sadducees, for whatever reason, they weren't like the Pharisees and the, some of these other religious groups during this time. They wrote a ton of stuff down. The Sadducees, all we know about the Sadducees from the first century is what their opponents, the other groups, wrote about them. Okay, so we don't actually know. We know it was a Jewish group. And all the, te- the Bible tells us that they didn't believe in the resurrection. So it appears from Scripture that, that, there's, that, the, that the thought that there's some sort of immortal part of our humanity that lives on after death, they didn't believe in that, and they certainly didn't believe that in a resurrection of our bodies uh, into a new creation at some time in the future. So when they ask Jesus this question, here's what you need to notice. They're asking him a question that they don't even, there's no answer Jesus can give them they're going to be happy with. Because to them, the, all seven of the guys are dead in the grave. They're not anywhere. So it's a hypothet- a crazy hypothetical question that they're asking just to have an argument. And when you realize that, that there's no answer Jesus can give them that would suffice, Jesus' answer becomes much more clear. Verse 24, he says, Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Who he starts with? In Heath terms, you think you're so smart. You don't know anything. And again, like, (laughs) I didn't know all the sermon was going to go this way when I was studying this week, but what a strong indictment against the church today, right? (laughs) We get so consumed with these questions of deep theology that don't even have a clear, definitive answer in the Bible. We want to sit and talk of deep things. But as Jesus says to the Sadducees, we don't even know the Scriptures and we underestimate the power of God. One of the biggest dangers before us in the church today where where we have commentaries and and, and all this stuff at our fingertips with, with technology One of the biggest dangers before us is desiring to become a scholar and not a student. To become a scholar and not a student. A scholar is someone who seems smart and impresses people with his or her knowledge of the Bible. However, a student is somebody who learns what they need for the task at hand. If you and I are to follow Jesus well. We cannot be consumed with the trivial hypothetical theology that will some will try to bait us into. Instead, let us dive deep into the Word of God for the answers that are there, for the purpose of Christ's likeness in us and the world. Amen. When we dive into God's Word as a student, what will what will and what will immediately begin to happen is that we'll begin to see the beauty of God's goodness and His grace towards humanity. We'll see that He created a good and perfect world and then He called us to care for it while continuing to stay under His rule. But we rebelled again and again and again. So He sent messenger after messenger after messenger to humanity calling us to repent. Does this sound familiar? but we abused and we killed him. And then 2,000 years ago, 
God upped the ante. He sent not just a servant, but his own son to call us back towards God to our original plan, and we killed him. Though he was without sin, we executed him like the worst of criminals. But what you've got to see is that even in our own sinfulness, God was working out his good. Because as Jesus was dying at our hands, God placed the sins of humanity within his body. And in that moment, Jesus experienced the separation from God on our behalf. What we deserved, he took on. All of that. He did so that we could stand before God without a rap sheet. Without a list of sins to keep us from Him because the punishment that those sins deserved had already been paid in Jesus. And what you'll find as we dive in as a student of God's Word, we'll discover that if you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf, you can be saved forever and never experience separation from God again you see this is the message that awaits us in these pages that are so often neglected in our lives however what's crazy is that the the story is actually more beautiful and grander and 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 bigger than even what i just described to you today if you're not taking the step to begin following jesus we would love the opportunity to talk with you we got several people that we're working through, kids, adults, right now, working through this process with, that you're going to be getting to witness soon in the baptismal waters. We would love for you to be added to that list. We're going to sing another song here in a moment. We do. I'm going to stand back at the back um, next to the sound booth on your left. Um, and I'd love to just talk with you and help you make that decision. But here's the deal. For those of us who are already believers in the room today, um, what, I do, what I pray is that God helps you see your own sinfulness and the sinfulness of our humanity. I told the first service this, uh, I'm a millennial. Golly, I even hate saying that. Because Google that, Google millennial. Is it going to be a good word or a bad word about us? It's going to be bad. And I admit that we're dumb. I admit that. I do. But what we've got to acknowledge as as human beings is that there is no one generation that's ruining this world. This weekend, I witnessed a man in his late 70s, early 80s. I witnessed two men, me and my wife did, in the same day. A man who we would all think, that man knows how to respect somebody. He was raised right. You know, all the stuff that that. I watched him belittle a 19-year-old girl at a McDonald's. And my wife watched another one talk to his wife of 70, 80 years as if she was scum. And I'm not pointing a finger at the 70, at, at that generation either, okay? What I'm saying is that can we all admit we all jacked up? There's no generation that is ruining our world. It is humanity as a whole that is broken. And we are messed up and there is nothing... There, there's, I mean, yes, raising matters, and yes, discipline matters, and yes, focus and direction, and all those things matter, but at the end of the day, humanity is broken, and we, I hope, through the text today, have seen that we are part of that broken world, though we have been redeemed from it. We are still 
sinners who wrestle with lordship and wrestle with obedience to God and wrestle with this question of treasure. We want God to help us know what to do with our money when he's going, you're not giving me anything, not even talking about money, just talking about your life. We get sidetracked with trivial conversations that have no significance to our daily walk with God, desiring to be scholars instead of students. Church, may we repent today. This morning, if you're struggling in one of these areas yourself, confess that before the Lord and ask Him to help you follow Him more closely. Guys, we've got a short window of time to make an impact for the kingdom. Like the window's closing for all of us. It's closing. And man, I want to do something. Man, I want, I want, I want to be part. I want to be a part of the expansion of God here on this earth. I want to be able to plead with people here and around the world to remind them of God's original agreement with us, that they can be restored into that. That God loves them. All nations, like we saw last week. We cannot let sin and distractions keep us from our major task, which Jesus called his disciples to make other disciples. I'm going to pray. If you need to, to, to pray where you are, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. And During that time of singing, if you need to come to this altar and pray for yourself or for others, you need to come talk to me in the back. I'll be back there to help you with any decisions or just pray for you. But um, let's, just, let's just talk to God about these things that we've discussed in his word today. So let me pray and then we'll respond. Father God, I thank you uh, that God, you, God, you're so patient with us. God, you're so patient. And God, I know, God, even me as a pastor, I don't deserve your patience. God, I don't deserve your grace and your mercy. God, even this week, God, you know the sins I've committed in my heart and my mind. God, and the things I've done and said. God, you know that. Yet, God, in your grace, you sent Jesus to redeem all parts of me, even in my brokenness, God. And I'm so thankful, God, that you didn't just redeem me by myself, but you redeemed my wife. God, you've redeemed my daughter. God, I pray that one day you'll redeem my son. And God, that you've redeemed a people to wear really soft Lindsay Lane East t-shirts in the world and, and make an impact for you. So God, I pray that you would give us the focus we need as individuals. God, give us the focus we need as leaders to stay in your word, God, to stay connected with you, God, as we talked about three on three a few weeks ago, God, to, to pursue you and your heart and your character, God, in our personal lives so that, God, we can stand in amongst the world, standing out different and calling them to be different too. God, help us with this. We love you, God, and we praise you, and we thank you for the opportunity to even speak your name. Lead us to respond in the ways that we need to. In Jesus' name, amen.